You are listening to the PFAS Research and Remediation Podcast Series, produced and created by Arcadis, with funding from the Environmental Security Technology Certification Program, ESDCP, grant number ER23-7692, through the United States Department of Defense. All opinions, interpretations, and conclusions expressed belong to the hosts and guests and do not represent views or policies of the Department of Defense, Arcadis, or guest affiliations. In this first season, we're focused on PFAS and interview a broad panel of experts who have each contributed to the growing knowledge base around remediating this emerging chemical of concern. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Andrea Leeson. Andrea has been with CERTIP ESTCP for more than 20 years and is currently the program deputy director. Our conversation today focuses on the growth of CERTIP ESTCP's interest in PFAS, a family of compounds that now holds a majority of the identified research areas of need for the program. We discuss some of that evolution, including the progress that's been made, as well as where Andrea sees the program heading from here. I'm Dr. Craig Devine, a technical expert with Arcadis, and I'll be your host today. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for providing your time to do this podcast and to highlight the work that uh, CERTIP and ECCP have done on PFAS. And uh, really, before we get started on that, can you give a brief summary of your general background and your specific role at CERTIP and ECCP? Sure. Um, I came to CERTIP and ESTCP, it's been a little over 20 years now, and I was working on bioremediation of different chemicals of concern. Before that, I was a researcher. And so then I came into the program. And since I've been here, I have been the environmental restoration manager for um, CERTIP and ESTCP. And within the last few years, I've also become the deputy director for the entire program. So under environmental restoration, maybe I talk about that a yeah, little yeah, bit that'd more be great. too. Yeah. Right. Environmental re- restoration really is pretty broad that we deal with um, certainly the tracking the movement as well as the treatment of chemicals of concern. But we've also dabbled in mitigation, um, particularly for those chemicals of concern that we're going to have to keep using. And that's like the munitions constituents, which is not what we're going to talk about today, but there are some chemicals of concern that we'll need to keep using, such as on, on our ranges. So we also deal with technologies where we can address and prevent uh, migration of chemicals of concern. Yeah, and we first started on PFAS. You know, we had a long history of looking at different chemicals of concern and treating them in groundwater, and had been very successful with other chemicals. So we released a statement of need: let's do in situ treatment of PFAS. And so we did that. And looking back, we were a little naive that, we, you know, we thought we know how to treat chemicals of concern in groundwater. Yeah. It's a lot more complicated. Andrew, as I look at the statements of need now, it's impressive how many of them relate to PFAS. In fact, really the majority of them now for sort of an ECTP relate to them. So clearly the, the priorities changed dramatically. And I'm curious, how do you see the priority of this constituent versus other potential constituents of concern? And how do PFAS specifically differ from you know, other chemicals of concern we've we've dealt with. I think a big part of it is just that the class of PFAS, it encompasses so many different sorts of chemicals. Right. When we were working with chlorinated solvents, you know, in comparison, you're really talking about just a handful of chemicals that you have to be um, worried about when you're designing your treatment systems. It's a lot narrower problem than we've dealt with PFAS. Yeah, right. So, the one treatment system that you're developing may be great for certain PFAS and not for others. So that's really complicated it. 
it's helped, I think, over the years. We had a lot of work already in understanding groundwater transport of chemicals of concern. So we had that um, a, a very strong base knowledge. And yep. that's been great because we've been able to build on basic understanding of movement and fate and transport of chemicals of concern in the environment. Um, but it's still a lot more complicated issue. Yeah, I mean, it's great. We've got these building blocks that we can start from and we don't have to sort of repeat some of the early mistakes. Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because, you know, as I said before, we started our first statement of need was to start funding in 2011. And we just said, let's look at in-situ treatment. And we quickly realized it just wasn't that simple. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of circled back to look at more fundamental issues about understanding the fate and transport of the chemicals from source zones. And not even, you know, not just fate and transport which chemicals are we even finding at these sites um, so that we understand which ones are of concern to us? And then, you know, we started getting into the whole ecotoxicity of the chemicals and understanding which ones we needed to be concerned about and which species were of concern for the ecotoxicity. So um, we've really cycled back to trying to get some of the more fundamental issues understood. And then we were cycling back to look at more the fundamental issues of some treatment technologies and, you know, kind of going back to these other chemicals of concern we dealt with over the years, such as the chlorinated solvents, our preference had always been for in-situ treatment, you know, whether that was a biological-based or a thermal-based, we really wanted to do in-situ treatment. It, it was generally more cost-effective. That's not looking like we can rely on it, though, for PFAS. And so we put a lot of effort into also developing the ex situ technologies mm -hmm. so that we can have the wellhead treatments um, systems when we need them. And we're, we're going to need them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I would think also within DOD, there's a distinct priority around maintaining mission readiness and not impacting the operations on active installations. And so technologies and solutions that are compatible with you know, existing footprint and land use activities at installations. I imagine that that's also sort of a consideration. It's a consideration um, because certainly on our installations, we have wellhead treatment systems. Uh, you know, it varies based on installation, whether waters go to municipal or treated on base. And, if, you know, the thing I've always liked about our program, too, is that the technologies we develop are more broadly applicable. This is not just a DOD issue. Right. You know, water treatment facilities around the country, around the world, are dealing with the issue of PFAS in their waters. So the technologies we develop are going to be widely applicable. We've really tried to look at the life cycle of PFAS. And I often, when I give a presentation, I often start with a schematic that, you know, so we're trying to understand PFAS at the source, into the soils, the groundwater, when it comes above ground, and after it's when you apply particularly the ex situ treatments, you have the ancillary waste streams, the spent sorbents. What do we do about that? Right. So, yeah, we're really trying to understand the whole life cycle of PFAS in the environment. Yeah, it's really impressive. I mean, with, with all that activity over really over a decade now, are there some key findings or outcomes that you think are pivotal or that come to mind as sort of particularly important or bright? I really emphasize that I think it's clear there's not going to be one solution. We will not have one technology that this is the answer and 
this is what we use. And I think with some of the other chemicals of concern, we, we had moved towards that a bit mm. where, you know, for example, with chlorinated solvents, typically you would consider bioremediation first. Right. Um, although there's other options depending on site conditions, but I don't think we'll have that with PFAS. I think it will be so specific to concentrations you're dealing with. What's the matrix in which you find the PFAS? Just a whole suite of issues will impact what's the best technology. So I yeah. think particularly for this chemical, we're going to be looking at combinations of technologies or yeah. treatment trains. Yeah, we need a large, much larger toolbox. I think about the PFAS issue, one of the things that's really unique about it as well is that the source terms are really different and maybe more varied than what we've thought about before. Uh, you know, you have, of course, fire training areas, but you also have land application of, of biosolids and you have, you know, ski wax residual in cold weather training areas. And, and so really sort of different source terms. And in particular, those source terms, I think, have a stronger potential connectivity to surface water and stormwater runoff. And then you have sort of this potential exposure pathway that I would say we didn't really think about very much with, you know, very often at least with regard to chlorinated solvents. So to me, it seems that's a new facet to the problem that will require, you know, certainly new conceptual models, better understanding of transport, and then also technology solutions, remedial solutions that are new and tailored to those situations. Right. I think that's true as well. We started in FY20, we started a suite of projects looking at the forensics of PFAS in the environment, which was really to understand all these different sources and and what was causing the PFAS we would see at different sites. And what I think is important about that is that you need to understand the source to best design your treatment system. And the forensics projects offer us some hope of understanding where the PFAS has come from, and therefore we can get a better design for the treatment of it. Right. Yep. So this year, your team led a, a workshop focusing on the future research and demonstration needs for PFAS. And so I'm wondering if you could broadly describe the purpose of this workshop, how the program uses it, and maybe some of the key findings, uh, either expected or unexpected, out of that. Sure. Under Certipin ESTCP, we'll do these strategic workshops. Uh, I'd like to do them once a year, as with everything, COVID hit us, so and so we couldn't have it. Uh, for a few years, we were really overdue to do a strategic workshop on PFAS. And how these workshops look like is we invite experts in the field, generally about 60 people. You can't, it becomes a lot less effective if you have mm -hmm. too many people, because right. the point of it is to hear from everyone. We want all the voices. And so the people we uh, include will certainly be the people doing the work themselves, the research but we like to combine it with people who are managing sites that are impacted with PFAS so that you hear from both sides. The people who are doing the research and the people who are developing the technologies and the people who ultimately have to use it. And so you'll get, we have representatives from academia, the industry, the consulting firms, as well as the federal uh, agencies from folks in the research branch of federal agencies, as well as the people managing sites or we, the remedial project managers. And we spent three days to just brainstorm about what are the data needs. And then at the end of that, we write a report and summarize it so that people can see that. And that we had the meeting in March for PFAS. The report was published recently. And the report is certainly tied heavily to what statements of need are released under CERTIP and ESTCP. So 
what was interesting, and I should have expected it, was just the vast number of research teams that were still <laughs> identified, considering that we've been working on this a little over 10 years. Although I will say we've been working on it for a little over 10 years in terms of the whole PFAS issue, but the funding really has expanded in perhaps the last four years or so. So the number of projects has really increased since about 2018. And we identified almost 60 different research needs. And when I see research, it, it was, we really split it into either research needs, which, you know, would indicate some basic R&D is needed. We identified what we call demonstration needs, where we have the information we need, and now we need to take some of this knowledge to the field to develop technologies. And then we also identified a handful of technology transition needs, which I think is very critical, is how do you transition the knowledge that we get out of our research into a usable format for people who are trying to manage their impacted sites. So we're still, you know, we had very few tech transfer needs that were identified and the, the majority is still research needs. There were still a lot of research needs identified. We had people divided into five different topic areas. Um, one was on fate and transport. And of course, understanding the fate and transport is the bedrock to developing the best treatment designs. Sure. And by far, the most research needs were still identified under fate and transport. Wow. So that's something we're pursuing. We also identified different sampling and analytical needs still. And then we roughly divided folks into three different types of treatment technologies, either destructive technologies that were not thermal-related, uh, thermal sort of processes for destructive treatment, and... Um, the last one was different concentration technologies. So that would include like your sorbents, things like that, but also these different amendments that are being designed to inject into groundwater to more sequester the PFAS. So the scope of the types of research needs identified was pretty interesting. And I found surprising how much research we still are looking to invest in. Yeah, yeah, it's impressive. Um, especially even needs around analytical capabilities sort of think that as a starting point um but you know there's some really important challenges with regard to the constituents and the levels and then also the matrices we're interested in that's right and we you're probably aware we spent the last couple of years we've worked closely with the epa developing a new analytical methodology it's epa draft method 1633 that was to expand the methods we had before the standard method that the EPA had developed was for PFAS in drinking water. And of course, we're worried about it in groundwater, surface water, all these different types of matrices. So that method has extended the analytical methods into these other matrices, but there's still a lot more to do. And particularly, what I would like to see also is some of the, the rapid sensing in the field, some field measurements, because can take a while when you have to ship your samples off and it's, you know, yep. a more complicated methodology. So it could take a while to get the results. So having something in the field will really be helpful. Yeah. Making sort of field decisions. Exactly. And adaptive characterization. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's great. By the way, I have to tell you, Paul Hatzinger noted that we didn't have a PFOS issue until we could detect it. So he blamed the analytical <laughs> chemists or maybe he thanked them. I'm not sure. So... <laughs> How do you look at tech transfer from a goals, uh, assessment, performance metrics? What does successful tech transfer look like, particularly in the context of PFOS and maybe 
you know, in the context of the next three years? What do you think needs to happen? Even though I know you mentioned that in the, in the workshop, that wasn't called out as much maybe as was expected, but it still seems to me, you know, that's still a really important priority, even in those early stages, so that we're rapidly taking advantage of things that, that we learn. What do you think a successful tech transfer looks like now? I really think it's difficult to track text transfer because it often is, it's very, ideally, it's very diffuse and the information makes its way into the communities to, to the people it, that need the information. And we certainly saw that, for example, with the chlorinated solvent work again, that, you know, many of the papers that came out, the manuscripts and the guidances that were developed over the years were based on a lot of work that was done under CERTIP and ESTCP. What I look at now with tech transfer is I really feel that the products that come out have to be geared towards the way people like to take in information. And that means there is no one right way for tech transfer that we have to hit many different approaches to reach the right people. And so that means the journal articles are important because we have to get the information out to other researchers that are developing and improving technologies as we go along. But we need the higher level documents too. We need short videos. We need the apps. And, you know, for example, we're going to be developing an app that will help people find the PFAS information they need that's most relevant to them. So I really ask people to be innovative and, and think outside the box, as cliche as it is at this point, to think about how best to transition this information and just get it out more widely. And and some of that is, you know, thinking about how you like to take in information in a casual way, you know, through podcasts. Some people prefer watching videos now, or even one page fact sheets. And I think it's hard to beat, you know, meeting with people in person and yeah. having like short courses that, that are actually in person. Um, virtual is great. We can reach a lot more people with the virtual webinars, et cetera, that we have, but it's also hard to improve on the one-to-one dialogue that you can get in a short course. So for every project we have, whether it's CERTIP or ESTCP, you know, I ask the investigators to really think hard about how they can bring up the information, really pull out the key details that would be important to someone trying to implement a technology as well as still continuing the traditional path of getting those journal articles out. Yeah, that's great. So if we were to do this podcast again in three years and talk about accomplishments through the program, specifically related to PFOS, I mean, what would some of the the success stories look like? What would you hope to see? I really would expect in the next three years, and I'm confident we will have this, that we'll have a lot more demonstrated technologies that have moved into commercialization, and we're seeing them implemented more widely, not only at DOD installations, but also more broadly through at PFAS and impacted sites. We have a tremendous number of technologies under CERTIP that have proven successful and now really need to go on to the next step and start testing at larger levels. And we have methods, you know, in process where we're moving up, moving up in scale so we can get these technologies tested at real sites um, with real field conditions. And I think in three years, we'll, we'll have a lot more like that. And we will have, you know, the technology user manuals available for a lot of technologies. I think that's coming up quickly. 
Yeah, I really resonate with sort of that user guidance, sort of standard practice or best practice. Yes. And that relates also to tech transfer. I think that really sort of graces the skids to adoption and and uh, uh, it also prevents or limits failures early in the life cycle of a technology that are related to maybe design mistakes and not to necessarily the fundamental concept or technology. Yep, that's true. That's true. So yeah, that's great. Well, that's very exciting. So thank you so much for your leadership in this program. And I mean, congratulations. It's a, it's the impact of this program is widespread. As we wrap up, I'm wondering if there's anything that else you'd like to mention or is there something that, that, that we didn't cover? I think we covered most issues. I really encourage people to look at our website. And as I said, that workshop report is out. So we have that solicitation coming up that well, that's out now that's based on the workshop. And we will have our ESTCP solicitation coming out in early January. And if you go on our website, we always have information about the solicitations available. We give other webinars that are just on the solicitations. So there's a lot of information out there. We try to be very open about everything we do. Every project we fund has a a webpage on our site. So the information's there. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you, Craig. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast was funded by ESTCP and produced by Arcadis. The interview was conducted by Craig Devine, and our guest today was Dr. Andrea Leeson. If you're interested in more information on ESTCP's work on PFAS, please visit serdp-estcp.org, click on Focus Areas at the top, and select the option for PFAS and AFFF from the menu that appears. If you have conducted your own research on PFAS and are interested in sharing your work, please email Teresa Gillette at Teresa.gillette at arcadis.com. That's T H E R E S A dot G U I L L E T T E at A R C A D I S dot com. And please keep an eye out for more episodes coming soon.